This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. So this is kind of how the outline of this morning is going to go. We're going to, we're going to look at what creation speaks. We're going to look at what God speaks. And then hopefully from the psalmist, we're going to see how we should respond to those things. How we should respond to those things. Um, um, and I, um, so let's pray. And then we'll kind of jump in and look at those, uh, those sort of three aspects of the psalm. Let me start with prayer. Father, thank you that you are a God that speaks. Thank you, Lord, that you um, don't leave us in the dark, um, that we don't have to fumble around not, not knowing um, answers to ultimate questions, that we, uh, not knowing how to deal with even some of the things in our own lives, in our own hearts. Lord, you are our creator and you reveal yourself and you speak in your word and you speak in your creation and we are humbled before you, Lord. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work to convict us of both your law and of your grace and your mercy and your love. Lord, that we would listen to everything that you have to say and that because we listen to you and because we humble ourselves before you, our holy creator, at the end of the day, we would know you more. We would be drawn closer to you and you would answer that prayer that we, yes, we do know you, but we wanna know you more and deeper. So I pray that you would help us with that this morning. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so to get a sense of what the psalmist is saying in this psalm, how many people have been out in the middle of nowhere with very little light pollution and seen the Milky Way in the sky? Right, yeah, I got a couple people that are like shaking their head, yes. That is an image that kind of stays with you. Like you look up and you see what is an absurd number of stars and all kinds of different sizes and all kinds of different clusters and like the pitch black of night. I was in West Texas where there's basically absolutely nothing other than snakes and desert. And you look up and you just see all of this clear band of stars that just spans the entire sky. And it's awe-inspiring. It makes you feel so small. And it, it, you can't even like take in how much is being shown to you when you look up. It adds like a whole nother level of what God said to Abraham when he said, look up and see the number of the stars. If you can number them, then you can tell how many people will be a part of your family. And if you've ever been in the night sky and just seen that, it's crazy. And I was watching a, a video I saw where they took, I don't know which telescope or whatever, but they took a dark spot in the sky, a dark spot where you like literally can't see anything with the naked eye, and they zoomed in on that dark spot. And they zoomed in and showed you galaxies. And like, like you're, you're seeing one galaxy and they take a dark spot and they zoom in and the telescope just shows you like millions upon millions of stars and galaxies and whatever the cloud things are. And you're just seeing all of this like diversity and colors and, and, and just everything is up there. And that's like the dark spot. So you're already a little bit overwhelmed by the reality of the Milky Way in the sky. And they zoom in 
to the place where you can't see anything and there's like all of these things that no one in the history of the universe could even see until we built a telescope and looked up there. So you wonder what's beyond that. This is what David is saying when he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Amen. That's the weight of his majesty and his glory. Creation is speaking. Creation is speaking. It says, in the sky above proclaims his handiwork. His handiwork. My handiwork is getting a piece of Ikea furniture put together without extra pieces. <laughs> I'm proud of that. <laughs> his handiwork is what we see and can't see that's beyond our ability to even soak in and comprehend. The heavens declare, they preach, they proclaim the majesty and the glory and the weight and the wonder of God's handiwork. And it's not just the beauty that we can't even wrestle with. There's more. Verse two says, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. I think the author is getting at the, the predictability, the, the, the reliability of, of everything going on in the world. The rhythms, summer, winter, spring, and fall, no one today is concerned that there will not be tonight. That's screaming God's capability at you. There will be tonight. There will be tomorrow. There will be tonight after that. It's proclaiming the knowledge and the wisdom and the glory of God and the, the rhythms of creation. And we know a lot more. Like, think of the forces it takes for the earth to rotate around the sun. Think of the, the differences in where earth could be that would completely mess it all up. The, the fact that the earth is a particular mass, that it has a particular magnetic field, that the, the, the rhythms of the rain and the, uh, and the evaporation and just like the, the things that we, the details we know going down all the Wikipedia trails or the YouTube videos that we watched. Like, th th this, is, this is proclaiming God's knowledge. This is screaming at us the wisdom and power and majesty and might of the one who would create all of these things. Yes, Lord. Verse three and four. It says, there's no speech it's translate that language too. There, there are no words whose voice is not heard. These things, the, the rhythms of the day, the skies above, their, their voice goes out through all of the earth and their words to the end of the world. 
God's saying, I have built things, my handiwork, no one escapes the reality of that. You can see it. In Denver, it's a little harder, and you don't see as many things when you look up in the night sky. But you also have internet access. <laughs> it's not the same. But we, everything in creation is screaming to everyone everywhere the glory and majesty of God. You can't hide from that. The wisdom it took for me to get out of bed and breathe this morning screams the glory and majesty of God. I like how he kind of starts this out looking up in the sky. I just imagine the, the Milky Way galaxy that I've seen and I was thinking, I was, I was sitting, um, at lunch, actually uh, waiting to meet Abraham, and I look, I was thinking about this psalm, and you know, I was wishing I could be out in the middle of West Texas, like seeing the Milky Way galaxy, but I couldn't, just sitting like surrounded by concrete, um, which I think for, <laughs> I told Bridget, I'm like, a lot of our buildings are just ugly. Like they're, pra they're practical, they're pragmatic, but they're like, they're just ugly. It's like pff, concrete tower, you know? Um, I'm looking at Levi because I've seen some really pretty things on his LinkedIn as far as architecture goes. Um, but you're just looking at the sky. And, and um, you know, it's hard not to think of like when there was the eclipse and you shouldn't look at the sky. But uh, you're looking at the sky and it's just, it's big. And it was deep blue with clouds. And you just look, I mean, I was just thinking to myself, I was sitting there, I'm like, how often do I just look up and think about how big that is? Like above me. And not that often. But I was sitting there and I was looking up and I was like, that's huge. Like, like over there to over here is again a, a distance in a span that I really can't comprehend. You know, I could Google it and say, well, I can see this far to this far. But like mentally, I can't actually get a grip on like what that, act what that really is. Like that's not an experience for me, the span of the sky as I looked up. And I think that explains what he's saying in the next couple of verses. He's like, hey, look at the sun. Look at the majesty and glory and beauty of, of this of this." expanse above us that's just screaming God's glory. Look at the, the rhythm of day and night and everything in creation. And he's like, you know what? The sun, it kind of just skips across. Like, no big deal. No one's like, man, I hope the sun makes it today. And, and it describes that. It says, uh, in them, in the, in the heavens, he set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And I was thinking of some of the weddings I've been to, watching uh, Josh or Daniel walk down the aisle. Man, there's some joy there. That ain't hard. That's like, man, we've been, we've been planning all this stuff. I'm beaming, you know. We were just hanging out with all the, the groomsmen. I get to kick this thing off. And you're just walking down the aisle like, oh, this is where the action is going to happen. 
This, this is where it finally comes together. Talk about a, a perk in your step, you know? You're just like, this is, this is like the sweetest 10 feet walk I've ever done, you know? This is the most exciting part of my life. And he's like, look at the sun. It's in this vast advance, and it comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. The sun is 99.9% of our entire solar system. Mass. A tenth of a percentage point is the mass of the rest of our solar system. And he's like, you want to see the heavens and the glory and the majesty of God? Look at the sun just trot across the biggest expanse you can possibly comprehend like it's no big deal. Like my friend walking down the aisle for a wedding. And to top it off, it says its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end. There is nothing hidden from its heat. It's power. It's scorching nature. And there's some conversation about what is meant by that. Um, I mean, without the sun's heat, or with even just like a tiny bit less of the sun's heat, everything would die. So there is a life-giving aspect to that. But, but, but most commentators say, well, if, it's, if nothing is hidden, you don't want to like hide from something that's bringing life. It's like the sun is so powerful as it goes across the sky, burning everything in its sight with, with joy, with like no big deal, like a strong man, like a bridegroom just kind of trotting along. It's not even flexing. Nothing can hide from it. Saying the heavens declare the glory, the majesty, the knowledge, the wisdom. Creation is speaking. Creation is telling everyone everywhere of the glory and majesty of God. No one is hidden from this. No one is hidden from this. Paul gives us some implications of this in Romans 1. And there's a lot here, but I want to focus on one thing because I think this is important for us. Romans 1, verse 18. This is the part I'll just pass over, but I'll make the point. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So saying God is revealing wrath because men suppress the truth, men and women suppress the truth, and he explains what they're suppressing. This is what's really important. He explains right here what is being suppressed. Verse 19, for because what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. God has shown himself. There is no speech that is not heard. God has made himself known to every one of his image bearers. And he explains that in the next verse, verse 20. Because or for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul's taking theology from Psalm 19 and saying, everyone's heard. God has clearly revealed himself in everything that's been created. Verse 21, I think this is important for us. Here's the problem. So they're suppressing the truth. God shows up. God is revealing himself. He's showing his wisdom, his glory, his majesty, his divine nature, his power. He's showing off all these things all the time for the people who he has made. But here's the issue. Here's why we suppress. Here's why we don't want to see it. Here's why we'd rather think of it differently. For although they knew God, verse 21, although it was obvious, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. That was convicting. Even as I look at the ugly buildings and the beautiful sky, I was stressing about who knows what number of things. Seeing just the expanse and thinking about how the sun just kind of trots across like no big deal. And even the beauty of the sky above me. When you read Romans 1, how often do we give thanks to him for that? How often do, does, is he revealing his glory and his majesty and his power and his deity in everything that's made? And our first response is thankfulness and joy to God. And I, we do, I mean, we live in Colorado and I've had conversations where we're, looking at some very beautiful scenery and we say, wow, look what God has made. But we also hike up there and say, wow, look what I have done. (laughs) Because that's what our heart's instinct is. Like deep down, we want to suppress the glory and the majesty and the vastness and the wonder and the beauty of our creator And deep down, we twist that and we want to say, I'm so great. I deserve this. I'm so awesome. I think another kind of hiccup for us there is... Uh, anyone that talks about like the culture or um, how the church interacts with uh, the world around us, people say all the time that without knowing it, the church is often thinking and sort of infected with unbelieving ways of thinking outside of us. Um, And, you know, we can look back at different points in church history and say, why would they even do that? Like, what's wrong with them, you know? Um, Never 
often thinking someone is going to look back on us and probably say the same thing. But I think that the, the, the reality that the heavens are declaring the glory of God, the reality that we have a creator is central, if not the most important dividing line between the people who were celebrating this week and the people who were grieving. Between the people who are worshiping self, maybe on the streets this morning, or the people who are worshiping God today. Because we can see creation as something we have to conquer. We can see creation as something getting in the way that we have to shape, that we have to mold. We can see creation as something that's chaotic, that's random, that has no purpose. That video that I was watching where they zoomed in on that little dark spot, the conclusion from the person there was, you are pointless. Don't think so highly of yourself. You're nothing compared to everything in the universe. That was the conclusion. That's the story. If it was an accident, if creation isn't displaying the glory of God, if it isn't revealing the majesty of someone who loves you and has purpose and who has a law and who has order, then you don't matter. It doesn't matter what we kill in the womb. It doesn't matter how I act. There's no creator that's shaping these things, that's revealing himself. And if I reject that, everything else goes. If I'm not comfortable with the reality that I am created and I'm not an accident and that God is showing off himself everywhere, that everything falls apart. You have to have that. You have to have purpose and design and intention or it falls apart. And if you don't have that, if you don't have purpose and design and intention and the glory of God, then yeah, everything goes. It doesn't matter. Paul says, eat, sleep, drink, because tomorrow we die. If that's the case, it's a real big difference there. And there's a lot more, you know, I'm not trying to like say that's the only thing, but it starts with that. Starts with just acknowledging that there's purpose. That's why we think it's so important when we talk about the story of God with the little arrows, it starts with creation. We have a creator. We have a God who has made himself known. We have a purpose. We have intention behind what's going on. And yes, because of the X on the story, things have spiraled and gone terribly wrong, but there's still intention and person and someone that's, that's displaying his glory and majesty in everything that's been created. It's not an accident and it's not something for us to shape. It's for something for us to see the glory and majesty of God in. So creation speaks. Creation speaks. And I think if we ask ourselves, over here, in a sense, we, we are proclaiming that we believe these things, but, but functionally, 
functionally, like daily, do I live in light of the story that says there's purpose and beauty and glory in the things that are made? Or do I live in the other story that says I have glory, I'm to conquer what's made, I'm the one that's going to order the universe the way that I want, I'm the one that says what is good. We suppress the truth. That's what's going on in here. The good news is, if it was just creation speaking, we would end on a sour note. Because God is showing us how amazingly glorious and wonderful he is. And when we look at the, the Milky Way galaxy and zoom in on the dark spot and see even more, it's very humbling. The good news is he, it isn't just creation that speaks. God speaks as well. God has, has given us his words that make sense of all of the things we see about ourselves and about the word around, world around us. Look at verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is reviving, the soul reviving. It's, that's a, uh, not the ethereal part. A Adam and Eve were made from the, from the dust of the ground and the spirit of, the air, uh, the spirit of God, and they were made a living being. They were made a soul. Like soul in the Old Testament is a way to say, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives every aspect of me. <laughs> physical, spiritual, mental, whatever you want to say. This is the law of the Lord is what restores who I am. The testimony of the Lord. We get, we get these work, we get these sort of, this is typical of the Psalms. It's like, I'm going to hit this at like every possible word um, to emphasize, to, to, make, to make a point. It's, it's speaking about God's word. It's, what, what, it's just told us everything creation says now it's telling us the God who speaks and it's giving us all these different words. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving my whole being. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Everything that the Lord has spoken restores us to who we should be, who we are, what we're missing, makes sense of the things around us, rejoices our heart. God's word is why we have hope. God's word is why we can say we value the beauty of the gospel because there's good news in what he's saying. He's telling us that I am restoring things, but I'm also, with some specificity, showing you how you fall short. I'm showing you the grace and beauty and glory of my commitment to people who utterly fail me all the time. I'm showing you how it should be, which shows you how you are not, while I'm telling you that I'm still committed, I'm still loving, I'm still concerned for you. There's this, 
there's this inner struggle with what he's saying that's simultaneously just as humiliating, if not more, than his creation when it tells us how we fall short and yet restorative and joy-bringing and something I can ground myself in because he's telling me that he's committed to me no matter what. And I think that tension is what makes it difficult for us to really enjoy with everything inside of us what he's saying. Because <laughs> there's parts that we like that we're like, oh, thank you, Lord. You're, but I don't, I'm not really comfortable with this other thing over here because it makes me, I don't like that. It rubs against me somewhere. Something inside of me is like we're pushing back against that. Just like I don't want to give thanks when I see the glory and majesty of your creation. I don't want to change something that I'm clinging to. And he's saying, no, my whole word, both the grace that I love you and, and, and am there for you and the, the law and the reality that like I created all of this. I'm telling you the, the way that things should be that will give you more joy and more peace. And I know deep down in your heart, you're like, no, I don't think it should be this way. And he's like, I, I trust me. Look at how glorious and amazing and majestic I am. I'm trying to show you both of these things. I want you, to, I want you to, to follow me and understand me and, and give your life to the things that I have said, but I want you to trust me and know that when you fail and when you fall short, that I have done all these things in Christ for you. The psalmist says, more to be desired are they than gold. Couldn't say Bitcoin right now, tanked. Um, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. More to be desired than gold, sweeter than honey. Those are, the uh, uh, free money is not something you have to like convince people to get, you know, like... If you went and threw a bunch of hundreds out in the parade today, there wouldn't need to be instructions. They would figure out how to get to it. Um, that's how candy is at my house, which is why I don't put candy at my house, because um, I just crave it and go towards it, like sweetness things. <laughs> he's, think about what he's saying about God's word that both like punches us in the face sometimes with, with how majestic and and right and true and in charge God is, but also is comforting to us in the gospel. Saying, what I have spoken, you should desire more than anything. What I have said should be what you crave. You shouldn't be able to keep it in the house because you wouldn't let it go. Is that how you view God's word? Is it, I mean, here it is. God is speaking right here, kind of showing us, even in this little statement, how we don't desire him like we should. Which I think explains the next section where, where we respond. He's showing us this glory and majesty in creation. He's telling us how, how 
His word revives our entire being more than anything else. And so that's what we should crave and desire and seek after in love. And the very next line is, who can discern his errors? Like, dang it. (laughs) Even as I say these things about how beautiful God's word is and everything that he's displayed, who can discern his errors? Woe is me. I think even as we, uh, we're in the New Testament, we're in the story of God, we're past what God has done in Christ Jesus. So it's, it's appropriate to see some of these things through that lens as the, as the apostles do. Think about how much the psalmist is expressing his desire and craving for God's word before he knew the word would become flesh. Before he knew the word would become flesh. He knows that we should desire the words and the speech of God because that's how we have access to God himself. That's how we draw near to him. That's how we sing, I want to know you more than I know you now. That's through your words. Those are the things that restore me. Those are the things that draw me near to you. And now past the cross, God is saying, I am showing you a person, Jesus Christ, who is gentle, patient, caring, king, resurrected, sacrificed himself for you, cared for his sheep, calls them each by name. I've spoken in my son. Listen to him. More than David, we should crave and desire and want fellowship with the son because we see the glory and the beauty and the majesty of everything that God has said in a person who wasn't humbled by creation, he created. He wasn't humbled by falling short from the law, it's his law, yet he humiliated himself for us. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He took on the form of a servant and obeyed his own rules to the point of death. could look up at the expanse praying to the father and say that's the glory that I had with you all of that that was my glory that I set aside who can discern his errors when creation speaks when God speaks our appropriate response is yes thanksgiving like I'm breathing today you've given me so many things Lord you've shown me beauty it is yes thanksgiving but I think it's also humiliation 
I think it's also saying, Lord, I need you because I don't even desire you like I should. I need you because I can't keep them for the great reward. I need you because I know what is right and I'm constantly being led astray by what's going on in here. And the psalmist knows that. He says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. That's a bold statement. Think of what you just said. It's like, I am offending you in ways I don't even know. Declare me innocent. That's a belief in a gospel. He knows the God that reveals himself isn't just showing us majesty and glory and wonder. He's showing himself commitment and faithfulness and love for his people and patience and love and forgiveness. He knows that. He's humbled himself and says, Lord, you declare me innocent from hidden faults. Think of the, uh, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. One of them is like, yeah, good thing I'm on track, right? Good thing I'm not like this other guy over here who's so bad. And what does the tax collector say? Lord, beats his breast out of grief, out of humiliation, and says, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, you know who goes away righteous? That one. That's the psalmist right here. Declare me innocent for my hidden faults. Lord, I need you in verse 13. Keep back your servant from presumptuous, from high-handed sins. Help me not see myself as God. Help me not, not put myself up as more majestic and glorious than you. How more, how more high-handed could we be than declaring we are the ones that determine right and wrong? that declaring we are the ones that shape creation and not reveal what God has done. Lord, he's asking the Lord to keep him from those sins. He says, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Then I shall be innocent. As I humble myself, as I come to you, Lord, and say, I need your help because I'm broken, you'll work. You're faithful. You're, you, just, you want me to just realize that I am not you and I'm coming to you in humility and trusting your word and what you're saying. That's our response. Um, New Testament picks up on this in a handful of different places. It says that God gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. And Peter says that in 1 Peter 5, 5. It says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Close yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter is like the quintessential, excitable, loudmouth in the New Testament um, but if you read Acts and you read his um, epistles, you can see that 
he chilled out a little bit and is much more fatherly and kind and, and careful. And he's like, hey, humble yourself because that's what, that's what God uses to give you grace. He's not just trying to make you feel low. He's not like the, the atheist that's saying, look at this expanse. That's because you're useless and you're nothing. No, he's saying, I want you to be humbled by my majesty so that I can raise you up so I can give you my grace and change you and transform you and draw you near to me and remind you that I created all of this because you are the crowning achievement of all of my handiworks because you are made in my image and you have worth and you have value and I love you. That's why he's humbling us. And Peter is really kind and, and, and gracious about that. And then there's James. James might have just smack you across the face with his Bible. <laughs> Um, you just, you know, like as a pastor, you read James and you're like, I don't think I would say it that way <laughs> to anyone I was sitting in front of, but James did, um, you know, so there's a time and a place for all these things. But he says in James four, four, he starts with you adulterous people, you total failures. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, God, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Like God, God created you, cares for you, you're in his image. He, he desires greatly that you would be friends with him. But you don't. He calms down in verse six and says, but he gives more grace. He's faithful. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When God speaks, when creation speaks, everything inside of us wants to promote ourselves and keep ourselves from being humbled. God opposes that. Whether you're Peter kind of gently bringing you there or you're James just like calling you out with all sorts of fire. Humbling ourselves is what God gives us grace. And I love how the psalmist ends. This is a request in verse 14, Psalm 19, verse 14. This is his request. After seeing everything, proclaiming the glory and majesty of God, talking about how his word revives my whole entire person and then humbling himself and saying, I don't, I don't desire that. I need, I need your help, Lord. He has a final request. He said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Yes. Let, help me, Lord. Help me praise you. Help me acknowledge you. Help me have the words of my mouth be something that's acceptable to you because it's worship and praise and connected to you. And my heart, my desires, everything going on down here. Change those things about me. Change me so that I desire you and only you. So that I wanna draw nearer to you through the things that have been made. There's tons of beauty of God out there. Don't ignore that, but they're a conduit to God himself. Help my 
heart see all of that beauty and that glory. Help my heart see these words as just another conduit to you. And then he says this statement, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What, what, what a, that is his mouth being acceptable to God right there. That is, is his heart drawing near and valuing Yahweh, the self-existing one. My rock, the thing that doesn't move, the place where there's certainty and peace, the place where I can just go and know that it'll be what it always has been because he never changes my rock and the one who purchases me, my redeemer, the one who knows I fall short and has still has rescued me. This is the beauty of our response to the glory and majesty of God. We can, with the psalmist say, who can discern? How do I even figure out what's going on up here? We can with the psalmist say, Lord, I need your help. Help my speech honor you. Help my heart be drawn towards you. And at the end of it, we can say, but you, Lord, you are, not will be, not were, not might be. You are where I can stand. And you are the one who has redeemed me. You are the one who has rescued me. You are the one who loves me and cares for me and I'm no longer a slave. I know a son or daughter of the king. That's why his word revives our soul. Let's pray and thank him for that. Father, thank you for this psalm. Lord, thank you that you you know us, you've created us, you see how our hearts go astray, you see how we take beauty and majesty in this world and flip it upside down instead of draw near to you. You know all these things, Lord, and yet you, you write, even in the Psalms, as Tim said, in a way that's relatable, in a way that helps us feel that we see this glory, helps us feel that we, we, we do fall short of what you've said, but you love us and you care for us. And Lord, I pray that with the psalmist, we would, we would also feel that you are our rock and you are our redeemer. So thank you for your spirit. Thank you for this morning. In your name I pray, amen.